Hi, and welcome to Decoding AQ, helping you to learn the tools, mindsets, and actions to thrive in an ever-changing world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Decoding AQ. I have with me today Charlene Lee, so welcome. Thank you for having me. And Charlene, she describes herself as a digital transformation and disruptive leadership expert. And for me, this is going to be a fascinating conversation. And for the past two decades, you've been helping leaders and organizations see the future. Uh, So that'll be interesting to dive into because I, as a futurist, love to try and envisage what the future looks like, but then also thrive with disruption. And you've been doing that as an author, as a speaker, advisor, and as a coach. In fact, such a prolific writer. I think, is it half a dozen books now that you've either written or co-written? Six books, yes. Six books. That's tough. That's uh, Congratulations on that. And your latest one, which is The Disruption Mindset, uh, Why Some Organizations Transform, Why Others Fail. So we're going to be diving into that too as well. So tell us a little bit more about you. Why, you know, why did you write your first book, maybe? Start there. Oh, I wrote this book back in 2008, and I was an analyst at Forrester, and I had started covering social technologies, so to speak, back in about 2002, started blogging in 2004, and the more and more I worked with it, studied it, worked with companies on it, the more I felt we were on the cusp of a revolution, and yet no one around me could see it, so I literally had this beast in my belly. I needed to get out there. And writing reports just wasn't going to cut it. It needed to be a book. There was a bigger story here. And books give you the breadth and the width to be able to tell the stories about the impact that social was having. So got permission to write the book, had a wonderful co-author, Josh Burnoff, working with me. And it was a fantastic experience. Uh, it was because Josh and I had worked together for eight years before this. Nice. I <laughs> got yep. it all out of our system. Yep. So it was a great experience. Loved it. And um, was that Groundswell or was that a different book that you started with? Yeah, that was Groundswell. That, that was, was Groundswell. my first book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when we see things, as you said, you were in this world and you were seeing something that perhaps others weren't, you know, these, these social technologies that are transforming the environment that we live in and what the future might hold for us. And I've met many people who say, oh yeah, everyone's got a book inside them. It's still, it's not easy, yet you described it as a very joyful experience, perhaps with the co-author you'd worked with. But it, I also felt like it was a joyful experience in the way you described it. And how did you, how did you make it like that? Because not every experience we have is either good or bad. We choose to make it a certain way. So what were the things that you did that still brings you that smile of going through something that for those who haven't done it, it's damn hard work. (laughs) Well, that's the reason why I loved it. It is hard, hard work. And it it gave me, I was exhausted from thinking about it. I was so challenged. And that's what I love about writing. It takes so much of my energy to get to the table to actually write because it is such a cathartic, engrossing. I mean, basically my family said after I wrote that first book, please don't write another book for a while. We'd like to have you back because I go, I would disappear into my cave of my mind and not come out. 
Um, and and you talk to authors, we all like to say, we, we, we like to have said we have written a book. The writing of the book itself is really hard, but that's what makes it so wonderful too at the same time. This moment, this this short amount of time when you're so engrossed in something, you're putting, you're pouring out your soul, getting that beast out of your belly, yeah. really, really hard. It's, it is um, not and as hard as childbirth. I'll tell well, you that, but it's that hard. I wouldn't know. Although I have to share with you, I um, I experienced at the weekend for the first time I was um, admitted to hospital in my life. I had a bit of an accident on Friday. And they gave me some gas and air. And uh, of course, they wheeled this in. And normally you have it when you're having childbirth, right? And to give you sort of context, I've never smoked, don't drink, teetotal. You know, I'm a clean vegan uh, guy. And uh, my wife was with me and I was on this gas and air. And it was just a really strange experience. And um I'd broken my elbow, uh, as it turns out, broke my elbow and a, a few ribs. So I've got, uh, I'm on pain meds uh, and I've got in a cast where they've, uh, you know, put me back together with uh, not as they first thought, some wires and pins, but some Kevlar. So I've got some Kevlar accessories in the, uh, in the elbow, which is interesting. But yeah, that uh, when you experience certain things that are new, there's obviously this mix of fear and excitement. And, you know, we have had brought up for a long time, certain things, certain sayings that might stick, you know, no pain, no gain. We have to work hard in order to get somewhere. And this sense of transition, I'm interested in your thoughts, particularly at this moment in time around disruption. You know, it's the focus of your latest book and you've particularly talked about it in a way of introducing mindset to this subject and topic. So tell me a little bit about why you've thought of disruption mindset and uh, a little bit of how that giving birth, getting that beast out of your belly has, has come about. Right, I, I have I've said that for the longest time, my, my purpose is to help leaders thrive with disruption. And then one day a leader came up to me about five years ago, five, six years ago, they said, okay, got it, got it. So how do I actually do this? And I realized I, I didn't have a good answer. And that when I don't have the good answer to something, I get very curious. I'm like, so how do you actually systematically develop being a disruptor, be disruptive, have a disruption mindset is what it came out to be, is that disruptors think about the world in a very different way. So what is it? Can we actually dissect it? And did a lot of research, review uh, interviews and surveys to figure that out. And there is a different way of seeing the world. And the one thing they do differently is they look into the future. They literally try to see the future. They make it part of their everyday. And they're talking about how can I change the world today to make that future come true? It's interesting, isn't it? Because disruption, we have these various words that seem to come into vogue. And then these seem to morph and take on many meanings, you know, because we try and apply, oh, that's what this means, or that's what this means. And we apply it in business or we apply it in our lives. And disruption 
as a word can have kind of two connotations, one where it might be positive if you're the disruptor and one negative if you're being disrupted. And sometimes that can be one and the same, right? If we get this right is how that we can be our own disruptor and the shift to maybe from some of the negatives of the consequences of that to transformation and that a disruption as a level of change that's so transformative, it affects many and exists, as you described, this new world that someone's envisaging, that's making it up, going from mind into real. And give me some idea as to what you uncovered in those conversations in that research on what makes a disruption mindset and a disruptive mindset, and specifically for leaders. All right, well, let me give you one very interesting statistic as, as that has come out of the pandemic. Again, we all universally experience this pandemic in a very similar way. We were going about our normal everyday lives and then very quickly within the space of a week, bam, it was completely changed. All of us went back into our homes and into quarantine. So we all had this universal experience. It was fascinating to see how people dealt with it. Some people just said, well, I'm here now. It's, I'm just going to wait it out. This is terrible. I'm going to try to make the best of it, but we'll muddle through. Other people said, okay, wait, what's really going on? The world has fundamentally changed. How will I be in this world? Where are the needs that have been now created? My old world is gone. How do I think about myself in this new world now? How do I interact with it? And so when all the pieces are torn apart, are you hiding and ducking, trying not to get hit by those pieces? Or are you jumping up as high as you can, grabbing those pieces and putting them back together again into the reality that you want to see? That is what leadership is. Leadership is nothing, nothing to do with a title. It has everything to do with your mindset that says, I see a change that needs to happen and I will lead it. And leadership is fundamentally a relationship between those who aspire to create that change and the people who are inspired to follow them. So you don't need a title to do that. You just need to be able to see the future. Yeah, you just need almost to give yourself permission to do that. And one of the challenges that, I've observed, and I'm sure you have, is that change, yes, it's part of life, right? And we experience it at different levels, right? It might be um, a level 11 on the Marshall, you know, amps level when it was a pandemic, if you were in this type of environmental role. For someone else, it might have been a level four. It could be that, you know, all of the things that happen through our, our lives that might be an environmental shift that we then decide who do we want to be, how do I want to show up, what does the, that new environment need, to my environment's the same, but I don't like who I am in it. I want to shift myself to, hey, I want to change the environment. You know, So all of these levels of change that we experience, it can be exhausting, right? Change uh, requires for the majority an exchange of energy that's depleting. For a very few that I've met, change actually adds <laughs> to the energy. But for many of us, at some point, that change is a drain. So this sort of, as you've talked about it in some of your work, this sort of change fatigue, you know, this reality that going through it so often, so quickly, so much, so intensely, 
how do we actually re-energize? How do we get ourselves in our teams or organizations into a space where we can actually enjoy that dance, enjoy that time? What's your thoughts about that when it's so perpetual, it's so ever-present that we can actually not just all succumb to it and say, I'm, I'm out, I'm checking out. You know, this is the most interesting counterintuitive thing I found in my research. Disruptive organizations don't get tired. They're, they're the energizer bunny of disruption. They just keep going and going and going. I'm like, how do you do this? And the thing is, they actually have a lot of structure, a lot of process and policies and rituals even around change. So what they do is they systematically build this really strong foundation so that it's very clear how change is going to happen. So they don't spend any energy trying to figure out how to change. They just focus 100% of their energy on the change itself. So this, this is the problem is that you get change fatigue when the change itself, you know, like, who do I talk to? There's so much friction. How do we make decisions? Who needs to be in the room? Can we get a meeting? Oh, we have to wait three weeks. What do we do until then? So that doesn't happen in these disruptive organizations. They come into the room. They're very clear about what decisions need to be made. They're very clear about the timeline, who's going to be involved, how the resource is going to be budgeted, what's going to be taken off the table. All of that is already written into their structure and into their culture. So when you do, again, some like what we were talking about earlier with the book, when you can get rid of all of that friction, my co-author and I could just sit down and we already knew how to work with each other. The writing of the book was the focus. And when you get that work done, when you're actually creating that change, when you're creating, that in itself is highly energizing. I had visions of a roller coaster in my head as you were talking there in terms of if the roller coaster had no principles of what it was, you know, operating in, it understands gravity, it understands friction, where does it need to have certain things of its processes and its, you know, methods and structure, it can then operate and it can operate where it's hard work when it's going up, but it can operate very easily when the carriages are going down and it, one brings energy, one takes energy. And we might even, when we understand some of these principles, be able to empower that energy back into our ability to go again. It's a bit like regenerative braking in electric cars is that, ah, we can use that power later, use that energy later. So that's what was going in my mind is this visualization of organizations that have understood the principles of the environment of change. They've rewired the operating system to a understand this is constant perpetual and it's speeding up so they can then just enjoy it you know they can get into that place and just before we hit record you were introducing me to a, a a phraseology that i've not heard before and this was about liminal space and this is the moments as if i understand it correctly in between change in between transformations and I'd love to explore that a little bit more about what does this liminal space really mean? How might that be a practical thing that we can set up for ourselves, for our teams and organizations to, as you said, answer this question of how do I do change better? Right? And maybe there's some little glimpses inside this concept of liminal space. 
Right. Because what, what you were just talking about, the roller coaster, it's, it's we often think about change and order, you know, change and constantness as two different things, two different states. And yes, they are, but you actually need both. You need to bring change to order because if order doesn't actually evolve and change, then it's just going to become just static and ossified. Whereas if you're trying to create change, if it doesn't have order, it'll fly off those tracks of the roller coaster. So it, you need order and change together to live in harmony with each other. In liminal space, liminal means threshold. It means that you're going from one place to another, one state to another. And we have, we create liminal spaces in our lives all the time. We have rituals like graduations or marriages to denote this is a time of moving from one place to another and you linger in it. And there is structure to this that we all recognize and can hold that space to create that liminal space now. And liminal spaces can be unsettling a little bit because it makes you take the time to slow down, to create this sacred space, to then contemplate. There's also a time of tremendous creativity. If you become open and curious about the future state and also filled with gratitude and appreciation for where you're coming from, that tends to reduce that change fatigue, that change anxiety that happens. And we can move that change quite well. I find we, we do this in our personal lives. And yet when it comes to work, we think of change as something we need to move through as quickly as possible to get over with. It's not a good thing to be doing lots of change. We just want to get it off our desk and go back to a state of constantness, a state of normal. Instead, I think we should revel in it. We should take the opportunity to create liminal spaces and they require structure and they require something like a master of ceremony, somebody who you can look to when things get kind of wiggly in that liminal space, there's somebody saying, this is the way, come this way. It's a, I think it's a, a precious space that we can look to create for ourselves and our organizations to say, let's take some time and it does understand take... that we are going through this change, recognize it, and that yeah. in itself will help so much with that change fatigue. And I think it is this reordering of our mindsets and understanding. You know, even just using the word change, what might happen to someone's body, you know, what might happen to their heart rate or their breathing or various things because of past experiences. And I think one of the challenges is how powerful our language is. What are we choosing to use here? And things like certainty or uncertainty, when you were talking about, you know, order or chaos, all of these spaces that need to exist together rather than, ah, friction's no good, we need to remove friction. Well, I had another visual of a hammock. And, you know, I love lying in a hammock because I can relax, but actually the hammock needs tension in order to provide me an area to relax. So in an organization, having these spaces in order to understand change, to create those spaces of safety with gratitude, with all of these things that can allow us to just be in that moment, not to, ah, I've got to get to the next bit, as you said, <laughs> go through it as quickly as possible, because we're so focused on 
outputs and outcomes as we upgrade, you know, from no, it's not about outputs, it's about outcomes, and we need to get these sorts of things. And what are the KPIs? What are the OKRs? All, all of these things. But just to experience the human moments, as you said, on those thresholds, and give ourselves the opportunity of creativity when we're in there, it needs brave leadership to give that cocoon to say, hey, this is a space we're going to hold. And we're going to hold it in this way to allow ourselves to be creative rather than, no, the output needs to be a creative output. No, we're going to just create the space and allow that to be unlocked. It exists there. We're just going to allow it to, you know, spark from. And Can what, I build on one thing though? Yeah, because please. Because I think it, yeah. this concept of the space is so important because we always, we oftentimes think about space as expanding our narrow view. But space, you also use this wonderful term, holding the space. It also means defining it. So how are we going to be creative? And what areas to bound that then makes it safe? Because I know that anywhere inside of this sphere of, that I've just created is safe. Don't worry about it. I'm, I'm holding it here. That's why that master of ceremonies is so important. That's why the structure is so important. Because if you're going to go and explore these unknown areas, really make yourself vulnerable, then you need to have somebody literally holding the space for you. Yeah. And leaders don't do this enough. We say, go off, be free, take risk, you know, go for it. And we're like, no way. Yeah. No way. We're not, we're not going up there. It's dangerous. It, it reminds me a lot, actually, as you talk about holding this space and the power of framing in order to unlock creativity. So when there are no frames, when there's no anchor points, when there's no things of boundaries, creativity is bloody hard, really hard. Yet we're thinking maybe as leaders, we're giving complete freedom because we've put no definition. What I've experienced from a couple of decades of managing creativity, which was kind of version Ross 1.0, was a brand and strategy guy of dealing with creativity was I found it when those spaces were created that understood the framing and boundaries that then that allowed such creativity to happen when those weren't there, it was almost unable to solve the problems because there was no real definition of a problem. There was no correct framing. So I, I agree with you this holding the space, but we also need that assistant, that guide, that leader, that Sherpa, that person who can pose great questions, who can give ourselves to the agreements of the boundaries um, to allow us then to uncover what might be possible. And the um, I, re I remember I, I'm a big fan of Peter Diamandis and uh, go to his uh, A360 conferences and various things. And I, I read a quote actually by uh, someone who I'd met there, who'd made a, a reference to you, actually, Charlene, and it was Beth Comstock. And she talked and mentioned, you know, you help teams dance with disruption. And I just love that concept of being able to dance with this thing rather than, oh, it's a thing I need to create. It reminded me as well about the great um, TED talk of the lady who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, talking about genius. It's not you are a genius. No, it's another thing. And you just uh, allow it to be in flow through you. And so if disruption then is something that happens and it flows through us, 
right? If it's a mindset that allows us to channel it and this liminal space is a way in which we can maybe even just foster the propensity for that to exert itself. What are maybe some organizations that have been doing this well? You mentioned just a few moments ago of some organizations aren't fatigued by it. They're actually energized. What are they doing differently? What is it that they have in place? Is it all of these things? Is there a few other things that you could share with us from your research that what they're doing really well? Sure. Um, I mean, I talked, I, I talked to one insurance company and it, insurance, right? Not exactly known for being disruptive or fast moving or technological, had made huge investments in technology because, I mean, what is insurance but data? And it, to, to ease and make it easier for their constituents and their members to, to be able to buy insurance, get um, qualified and quoted very quickly, much faster than the past. And this required a huge amount of change in the back. And they put in a structure to manage a transformation all the way from the very top of the CEO's office to the various divisions and down into the various departments in those divisions. So there's somebody on there who is responsible for driving transformation. That is 100% of their job. And it's expected that the presidents and leaders spend 25% of their time on this. And here's the key thing that they did. Anytime a transformation initiative was put onto their desk, they were required to take something off of it. It wasn't piling on yet another thing because the idea was that when you do this transformation, some things will happen now and other things will no longer be needed. You decide what needs to come off. Let's just let that land a minute. What an amazing environment it must be to work in a place that when something lands on the inbox desk, the prerequisite of that landing means something else has to be removed. You know, that idea of multiplication by subtraction, that the endless capacity that more with less, keep, keep <laughs> shoveling it in to realize that we can stop doing something in order to start doing something else. And that trade-off and, and, and peace that maybe there's a space of that loss having a ceremony, you know, in that transformation of, okay, what are you deciding to say thank you and goodbye um, and accepting in the next? I really like that idea. And maybe there's a bit, there was something you said in one of your videos that I watched and it was referencing about leadership and you, you had a sentence and it, it really made me think, Charlene, and it was give up control in order to be in command. And for many of us, this balance of certainty and uncertainty, adapting, going through change, unlearning things, there's points at which we willingly give up control and other points where we don't take the pandemic. You know, many of us didn't choose to give up that control of where we might work or how we could go about our social, you know, uh, friendships, where we go and be. So when these sorts of things happen, when we either give up or control is um, put aside off of maybe one desk and moved, how do people really go through that? You know, when it's easy to hear, oh, they have to decide what to give up. How can people do that well, you know, because it's often maybe a harder thing is to say no and to give up something than it is to say yes and to take something on. 
So help me do that because I want some help in what I can say no to better. Oh, I do believe that the art of focus is the art of saying no. And strategy, you know, you've heard this saying, strategy says what we will do and what we won't do because we can do anything, but we can't do everything. So if we're going to go on this journey, we're going to go on this road to the future, we have to know this is where we're going to go. We're not going to go in these other directions. We're going to go in this direction. And as leaders of teams, when you see people watching the same direction, but somebody else is going, they're, they're going over there. Like, wait a minute, why are you going over there? Do you see something interesting? Do you see a detour, a way for us to get to our objective faster? Oh, no, you're not. Oh, you need to get back on the road. So the, the, the focus, I think, is to be absolutely clear about where you want to be headed. And then you look at everything that you're doing, go, is it helping me get there? And, and it's a simple calculation in some ways, but you really have to be honest with yourself. If everything that I'm doing, is it really helping me get onto my objective? Uh, Jeff Wiener had this, he was a CEO, now chairman of LinkedIn. He had this habit of constantly saying to people, uh, you know, this is LinkedIn's, you do this all the time, begin every single meeting. This is mission. This is the mission of LinkedIn to connect the world's professionals. And depending on the meeting, he would pull out one of their values or one of their strategic initiatives. So just remind people, this is what it was. And people got so tired of hearing him say this. They asked, when are you going to stop doing this? And he said, I will stop doing this when people stop looking surprised. We forget where we are going to. We forget why we're doing things. I'm sitting here doing some, you know, fuddly things. It's because, you know, it feels good. I'm checking things off of my list. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is really helping me achieve my objective. And I realized, no, it's not. Can I delegate it? Or can I just even not do this? Saying no is really hard. And, and my trick here is, if I am committed to something in the future, would I do this thing right now? If I had to drop everything, would I do this right now? So Ross, you, know, you asked me to go on your podcast. I get asked to go on podcasts all the time. And I really have to ask myself, given the subject, given the person, would I do this right now? And I said, yes, I would love to sit in a podcast with you, Ross. But for a vast majority of them, it's like, hey, we've got a podcast for plumbers. I'm like, no, I, no, I, I wouldn't do that right now. Yeah. So I say no to that. It's that power, isn't it? That, as you said, focus can give us incredible power. And then that's this, you know, harmony between order and chaos. If we have order about, okay, what's the focus? What's the goal? We can maybe be open to a whole variety of ways of getting there. The how, right? We can go off and we orientate ourselves by checking in and saying, does it help us get to there? Is it aligned with this? And I think for the majority, that's absolutely a valuable piece, right? That's almost like level 101 of, we need the North Star, we need this. And every time we go off because, oh, there's a shiny object, or this is something that's giving me a bit of joy, is to just have our LinkedIn you know, head coming back and saying, is it serving the mission? And I think there's an incredible still, you know, journey we've got to go on to get that right. But where I think there's a unique opportunity right now is the fact of that endpoint, that goal, that focus. We decide that based on the assessment of what we know today. And we're figuring out and we're constantly committed to that mission. Now, some missions 
are going to outlive many generations. Other missions actually might be achieved or might be surpassed by a mission that what we thought was important is actually just a symptom of a deeper mission, you know, and a deeper challenge to what the root cause of a problem may be. And by allowing ourselves to shift and be open to that could unlock entirely new collaborations, entirely new disruptions or transformations and, and all of these things. And so I think there's this almost very strange situation we're living in where for a number of decades, a lot of the work was about, oh, we need alignment. We need continuity. You know, in politics, it was, you know, just when we're at the edge of getting sick of that message, might it meet the outer rims of the people we're trying that message to be heard by, you know? So internally, we've got to be so sick of it before it might even just touch the outer rim of the external. And that reminded me when you were talking about LinkedIn is maybe there's the odd moment in those liminal spaces that just might allow us to peek at a different horizon that might allow us to just, maybe I could tweak the mission or not. Is it the right mission for me? Is it the right mission for the organization? Because too much of that is continual chaos bright object, shiny object, off we go. We need some direction. But I think, and I'd be interested in your, especially in a disruption mindset, is there a glimmer where we can just, I didn't even see that mountain because it was so foggy and I wasn't there yet, but that's now where I want to go. So I'm just interested in your thoughts about it's, my ramblings there. Such a great point because you can get stuck in your ways. You can get stubbornly stuck this is the path. I'm going the path. Don't get, you know, don't, don't distract me from the path. But there's a hubris in that versus having a humility to say, I don't know always, is this the right path? And to take those moments to say, and to question this to say, are we still on the right path? Let me get off from driving the road and look at the map a little bit, look at the landscape and say, how has it changed? How has the world evolved? And Again, I, I encourage people to take moments away. So I'm going on a retreat in a few weeks, going away for a week, putting away my phone and computer, sticking it in the box saying, keep it away from me for the week, just to give myself time to think, to feel, to evolve, take stock. We all need those points. You know, the timing could be, could be different. But I also believe in when it comes to your company, Strategic planning on an annual basis is insane. I mean, why do we think that the world is ordered on an annual basis just because the calendar turns that way? If you're truly doing disruption and transformation, you need to take stock of your strategy every three months because you'll have been moving and actually making waves if you're doing this right. So what are the repercussions of those waves? What are the echoes coming back and how are they transforming the road ahead of you? If it's constant, the road is constantly changing, you may have to take a detour, but you won't know unless you look. We don't it, look nearly enough. No, it's that and, zoom in and zoom out. Yeah, isn't it? but to do it in a very structured way again, what are the bounds of within which we'll look? And yeah. that is the hard part. Are we looking too big, too far? And you'll know within a quarter or two whether that scope was right because you'll see things coming out of left field that you never saw before. Like, wait a minute, how was I blind to this disruption? How did I not see that coming? I may have to expand my scope 
to understand all of these forces, or I didn't take it seriously enough. I was sitting here right in plain sight and I didn't see it. This is why seeing the future, and I, and I talk about seeing the future, it's not the future that I see, it's the future that I enable people to see for themselves. Yeah. It does no good if they see my future. They have to be able to see their future. And you do it by looking for it all the time. To have that radar up, to spend significant time. As a leader, the more you go up in the organization, the more time you should be spending on looking at the future because no one else will. Yeah. But, you know, if you're the CEO, you're not spending 25, 50% of your time looking to the future. Who else is doing that? Yeah. It's really important, isn't it? And as we're living in an exponential world, that concertina of time, you know, a year in the 90s of strategic planning is very different to a year in 2021 of planning, which will be very different to strategic planning for a year's lens in 2030. So this crescendo of, you know, speeding up to slow down or slow down to speed up, you know, all of these challenges that we're facing, we have to almost think about a playbook that is shifting you know, an old playbook of how we would have traditional well, calendar terms, let's go and do our annual retreat to look at the strategy, that we have balance to continually look at landscape, that we give the space for that to happen. But also people, I can't emphasize this enough, and you mentioned it a few times, is that we need help from the outside. When we're inside, it's so hard to see things. It can be in plain sight, but we're just invisible for us. You know, we have sunk cost fallacy. We have all of these different things that are wedded to how things were and wired to protect, to mitigate risk, to manage risk, not to exploit it, not to go off and explore. And the best order and chaos and the harmony between those things is to have pockets within an organization and team that that's part of their mandate uh, to do it. And to finish up, I want to ask you a question. Um which has started to become a little something for me. And it's a personal passion where I'm constantly looking for things that I to do for the first time. So when we're children, everything's the first time as we're growing up and we slowly work our way in, oh, that's not for me. That's not my identity. That's not who I am. Or I've experienced many things to I get actually almost drowned or turned off from what new things there are. And so with my family, with my grandchildren, all sorts of things, part of our ritual is, ah, in the last week, what have you done for the first time? And when I work with, you know, companies and clients and leaders, and I ask them that, and sometimes they don't know, and they can't think of the last time they did something for the first time. So I want to offer that question for you, Charlene, of when was the last time, something that you can share publicly, obviously, <laughs> that the last time you did something for the first time and what was it? Well, something really big is I went skydiving because I'd always wanted to, but I made a promise to my husband that I would not do it until my kids were grown. So I did that finally in, in the fall of 2019. I recently just took my son skydiving too as well um, in, in a vacation. Um, Something that, to, that I would change that a little bit because it's not necessarily doing something new as it is doing things that are different. Different, yeah. So it could be, yeah, something that you were always doing this way, but you've now put a new approach or a new thought to it or a new perspective 
Uh, so you're approaching it for a brand new way. Absolutely. And I try to do that every single day. <laughs> Love it. I work it into my schedules. I work it into the things that I'm doing every day. So that I'm like, oh, this is different. And if nothing else, I'll just do things with my left hand instead of my right hand. I'm very right hand dominant. So I'll just do things with my left hand just because it's a challenge and it makes me look at the world differently. I'm like, oh, this is, so I was experimenting with if I were left-handed yesterday, how would I open a can? Because a can opener is for right-handed people. And I'm like, how, how would I can't? I would have to use my non-dominant hand to open, to literally cook everything in my kitchen because everything is so right-hand dominant. So it's I love that. And that things like this that just make you shift your perspective, yeah. create empathy for other people. But I find wonder and adventure in, in even going to the grocery store. I was pumping up my tires yesterday, could not figure out what was going on. And this gentleman who was also waiting for the tire goes, you got to push the button to turn the thing on. I'm like, oh, okay, got it. <laughs> okay. But it's, it's little things like that, appreciating that moment of challenge, of change, really looking at that, that could have been an everyday hassle to think about it as a gift, to say, how do I look at the world differently? How do I look at this person who I was a little bit nervous, he pulls up to me next in the dark in a you know parking lot, like, who is this person? I'm like, I'm gonna be open to this, yeah. to who this person could be and what they could bring. And the experience was wonderful. He held the hose for me to make sure it didn't scratch my car. I mean, it was a great yeah. experience. Being, so when we look at those opportunities as opportunities to change and to grow, then you can work it into every single part of your day. Super valuable. And to think of this as a muscle, right? Is that the more things that we can just have fun with ourselves, whether it's using different hands, made me smile because at the moment, you know, I'm having to do everything one-handed, you know, three days, had no feeling in the fingers or anything and just figuring out everyday tasks. That can be a challenge or something to experience and enjoy and give you different perspective, being open to different people, reading things from a different source than we might, you know, like, you know, the art of holding our mental flexibility for an area where we believe something, what if we took the opposing view and looked at those things and the sources of it that generally we try, we just poo-poo because it doesn't fall into our beliefs. That I think is a great way to help us deal with and thrive in disruptive times because it becomes less uh, of a shock and more of the norm uh, and a way in which to tolerate, but not just tolerate, to leverage and harness the opportunities from those. I would say thrive. Thrive. Yeah. When we're thriving with change and thriving with disruption, it puts you in a completely different space. I love how Beth talks about dancing with disruption. Yeah. How do we lighten this? How do we revel in it? How do we look forward to it? Not because we're afraid, but because it's going to bring us opportunities. And as you picked, you know, mindset, the power of mindset is the choice to do those things, to look that it's your view about thriving, not that it is going to give you that. You see the opportunities, you seek the opportunities. I'm incredibly grateful for our time together. It's been fascinating 
And as I've said on a few of my podcasts, you know, I do this because I genuinely want to learn. And, you know, I'm curious to meet amazing minds. And as Daniel Pink talked about, you know, one of the finest business minds. And I think, thank you for your work, for your focus and sharing your research and thoughts and the way you think about the world is helping many people create the worlds they want and to thrive. So thank you for your time. Enjoy your retreat that you've got coming up. And I look forward to maybe more conversations and collaborating in the future. Thank you. Do you have the level of adaptability to survive and thrive the rapid changes ahead? Has your resilience got more comeback than a yo-yo? Do you have the ability to unlearn in order to reskill, upskill and break through? Find out today and uncover your adaptability profile and score, your AQ. Visit aqai.io to gain your personalized report across 15 scientifically validated dimensions of adaptability. For a limited time, enter code PODCAST65 for a complimentary AQME assessment. AQAI, transforming the way people, teams, and organizations navigate change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Decoding AQ. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast directory, and we'd love to hear your feedback. Please do leave a review, and be sure to tune in next time for more insights from our amazing guests.